Welcome to From the Ground Up, Athletic Performance Podcast. On this episode, I sit down with Jared Burton. I've listened to Jared on a number of occasions, and I've always found the ideas that he presents to be interesting, thought-provoking, and well-founded. We start the conversation by discussing a topic that is dear to my heart, isometrics. And more specifically, Jared shares some of the common faults that often occur in long-duration isometrics. These early points are important for many of the concepts discussed later in regards to compensation and high velocity, high volume. I found it refreshing when Jared shared how he attempts to inject self-reliance into the models he utilizes with his athletes. For instance, athletes examine themselves for compensatory mechanisms and employ different training means and isometric protocols to get the body back into balance. Jared has an extremely interesting take on the accumulation of fatigue in training. Upon hearing the words high velocity, high volume, most athletic prep coaches assume these zones don't complement or go together. Jared shares his intriguing view on athletic prep and development and his intriguing rationale for how common preparatory methods may be making athletes more efficient at being inefficient. I started this show to share thought-provoking content and I definitely say the suggestions here help to stimulate and drive interest and research for more holistic, creative, and efficient preparatory methods. Plenty of thought-provoking concepts held within this episode, so without further ado, let's get to it. Welcome to From the Ground Up, Athletic Performance Podcast. My guest today is Jared Burton. Jared, excited to have you on. I've heard you talk on a couple of occasions and just following your social media presence and looking at a lot of the different concepts that you put out there. There's some things that I've covered in the past and some things that I feel like we can kind of uncover and look at through a different lens. And that's really kind of what my goal is on this podcast is just to hear a variety of aspects, a variety of perspectives on a, on a variety of topics as well. So we'll be focusing on isometrics, which I've referenced. I've had Cal Dietz on. We've talked about a more traditional triphasic approach. I've had Dan Fichter on and I've had Stefan Jones. So all these guys have talked about isometrics and how they employ them. You'll be kind of bringing the long duration isometrics into the fold today, talking about your own personal experience. And I really appreciate how you utilize them, not only as an experience for athletes, but as a screen as well, because I believe you'll be also providing some interesting uh, considerations for fatigue and just the accumulation of volume. So a lot of exciting talking points, really excited to hear your perspective on these things. Before we jump into those considerations, though, just want to give you an opportunity to introduce yourself to the audience. Cool. Well, thank you. I really appreciate the opportunity and being on. So it is an honor. And, and, you know, you've mentioned already some some names that I've, you know, did plenty of learning, you know, whether it's just through podcasts that they've done or um, any sort of presentations, you know, so those are the people that kind of really got me started and, and actually excited to be in this field, you know, names like Dietz and Victor. And, and if I never heard of those names and I never heard them talk, we wouldn't be having this conversation today. So it's very cool. Right now I'm in chiropractic school, so I'm finishing up my last year. Uh, so it'd be nice to be graduating soon. And then I currently train athletes kind of remotely on the side. Prior to chiropractic school, I was working with Brett Adams at Transcending Performance. We kind of were all working together at a facility, all of some college as well. Uh, and so when you have 100 plus athletes and you know, you're know you rolling through and you have 16 athletes at one time and one hour session, you know you learn a lot about 
how to do isometrics, how to uh, implement them in a large scale setting. And you also get to be able to learn about, uh, learn a lot about compensations and how to essentially get these individuals out of pain and maximize their performance. So that was a really good opportunity for me there. Interesting that you present kind of in your introduction that rationale, because I've had both myself like working with larger settings, which I work in a team setting with, you know, upwards 50, 60, 70 athletes at a time. And then I work on individual basis as well. And they both like have their merits and different things that you can gain from them. Like you said, getting exposure to so many different movement patterns and so many different compensations. It's great to get your eye on that. And then sometimes it's great to be able to work more closely with individuals and have more time to experiment, be creative and explore. I think today, as we go through this conversation, we'll kind of have an element of that, the importance of creativity and meeting athletes where they are. Uh, I believe in one of the first talking points, you'll probably present that as well, just based off of what I've heard you kind of rationalize. So all great points that you present there. So in order for us to kind of structure this conversation in an effective way, let's start out with long duration isometrics. And most people listening are probably familiar with them. So I really wanted to kind of talk about what you referenced, some of the faults that can occur, because I was working with athletes today and we were just going based off of sets. And I was like, I kind of pitted them against one another. And I was like, you see, we just did the same workout, but we got very different stimuluses based off of what each group actually did, the way that they went about doing the work. So just doing work doesn't guarantee a certain adaptation, I would say. It's it's kind of some of those smaller things that we kind of bring into the fold. So I've seen you say that the number one mistake that people tend to make when performing isometrics is not taking into account the agonist and synergist with antagonist and their synergist muscles. Um, I've also also seen you say, and I loved this, holding positions matter, engaging a lack of tone around muscles matter, and creating awareness around muscles and their joints matter. That's why I love to do isometrics, mostly, you know, condensed right there. So you made a great point with that. So I wanted to throw those in there before you rationalize on those. Yeah, no, those um, probably the biggest things that I've learned is that you know, you can get into an isometric and, you know, you could just all out max and try and last as long as possible muscles that aren't, that don't have the tone to say that they lack the tone and you're just rolling with the dominant muscles. Uh, I usually say that you, you start becoming more efficient at being inefficient. And so if you want to change a compensation, you have to look at what muscles are not firing. And then uh, you also have to look at the positioning because, you know, a big thing with the hips that I see a lot of is, you know, if somebody gets into a lunge position or uh, um, something that's on a single leg, their hips will drop. Okay. So, and, you know, we hear about this, well, it's usually a, a weak glute need of the stance leg. So whatever leg is, if it's a lunge, whatever leg is forward, if it's a single leg raise, the whatever leg is, is the stance leg. That uh, usually glute mead to say is usually weak to say, and that opposite hip drops. And so you get this diagonal pattern that you see in the hips. And so one of the things that I, I often see is that, you know, okay, somebody will be able to control a certain muscle when the hips are crooked, and then you have them straighten them out. And then all of a sudden, something else will not fire anymore. So it's like, okay, the glute mead starts firing, but all of a sudden the quad just shut off. And so then it's like, well, why is the quad shutting off when the hips shift this way? Is that appropriate pattern of gait? Is that a faulty pattern? Um, and so those are just extra questions that you have to ask yourself. But that was kind of where I, I really started with my athletes is figuring out, oh my gosh, every single time that they're in you know, one position and I have them get back to a, a 90, 90 degree position somewhere, a muscle will turn off. 
they would lose the ability to contract that muscle. And so, you know, that was one big start of it. So basically what I'm getting at is that perfect positioning does matter. And then the ability to control both the agonist and antagonist is very important. Um, and so if you don't have that happening, then you're only training one side of the body to say, and in order for reciprocal inhibition to work, you, you need both muscles to be engaged. And if both muscles aren't being engaged, then again, you're not training your body to work at high, high velocities. And when they talk about it, and this is even things that Jay Schroeder, you know, he first threw out, I, I don't remember when, but he was saying a long duration isometric, when you hold a static position and you don't move any joint angle, it is a high velocity movement between the antagonists and the agonists where they're, they're at a very micro level. It might not be a high peak, but at a very microscopic level, they're very rapidly turning on and off. So if only one of those muscles is firing, then the other one is not going to be like, they can't reciprocate. And if they can't reciprocate, then you don't teach the muscles to relax. And so this is something very common where people do get into like a glute ham position. And they think of a glute ham position as training the posterior chain. We're going to train the calves, the hamstrings, the glutes. Well, one of the biggest things that people miss in that glute ham is, is the contraction of the quads. And so then it'd be also vice versa. If you're in the lunge, you know, um, your quads are probably automatically going to kind of start contracting, but people miss the fact that they have to engage the hamstring. So getting an understanding of gravity to say is going to be imposing this this so-called force that's going to be causing certain muscles to contract. And then it, it's up to you to be able to then engage the muscles to hold yourself up that are not being contracted by gravity. Okay. So just a couple of things, and then we can kind of go into some of those points that you made. Firstly, as far as like, are you going with a more classical time domain? I want to talk about like kind of building up into these movements as well. Like if you notice that people lack, uh, I guess you would say the ability to hold these positions for longer periods of time, that would obviously point towards compensation, but also they just don't have the structural integrity yet, or just like the resilience, I guess you would say, like, how do you build towards those larger time domains? And what is your kind of goal? Do you have a goal? What's your rationale? Um, on that firstly? Yeah. I mean, it, it really just depends. You know, it, some people might not like the answer, but I, I've mentioned it times in other podcasts is a lot of it's just going off of intuition, but you know, that intuition could take me somewhere where we're going to go through an embry embryological development. So if somebody lacks the ability to, to control a certain muscle, the workout progression might go where somebody is first laying supine. So they're first on their back and then they go into a, a different exercise where they're laying uh, prone. And then they go to from a seated position to a standing position to a split stance position and then to a movement position. And it's like, even though those are different positions and they might be different exercises, each of those exercises, you can focus on the same muscle that you're trying to engage or the same area that is lacking uh, the strength that it needs. And so that's one way that I do it. Uh, another way is through pulses and pulses essentially mean where you contract a muscle as hard as you can, and then you relax it and you're looking to get to that peak tension. So if I sat here and I contracted my bicep as hard as I can, as soon as it got to that max contraction, I'd immediately relax it. And you're looking for people to learn how to contract, relax, contract, relax uh, as hard as they can. So that's another good way. And I mean, the times, you know, you can break it up where people go from five sets of one minute, 10 sets of 30 seconds, uh, 20 sets of 15 seconds. Uh, maybe they do 15 seconds of pulses to gain the awareness of the area. And then they do another 15 seconds of just all out max contracting the entire leg. So those are just different ways that I use to 
kind of progress people. But also at the same time, I've also said, here's five minutes. There you go. <laughs> Let's see what happens. And so sometimes, you know, it's, it's, I build them up and other times it's just, you're thrown to the wolves and you're kind of there to kind of figure it out. I like all those different rationales. I mean, I like whenever I hear something from someone and I can connect it to like things I've heard in my past, like the positioning things. Like I had Pat Davidson on on a previous podcast and he always talks about finding that layup. And that's something that like I had to grow into because you learn more about like, how can I make an exercise easy? Whenever you're working with a, a group within a group, a silo, like sometimes you may have people doing three or four different variations of an activity and it's, you get the most out of it like that because you can continue to preach towards a model. But if if they just can't integrate that, then they're not going to get very much out of the day and, and you're not meeting them where they're at currently. And then you talking about the pulses. I can appreciate that as well, because I think I've seen uh, Christian Thibodeau talk about like the contraction and the ability to feel that muscle, like really lock up showing that you have the ability to actually grow that muscle, engage that muscle, and you're not, you know, compensating and getting around that muscle. That's a little bit more in the bodybuilding world, but it also has great applicability to what we're speaking on right now? Well, it, I mean, it's it's huge, because if you don't have the awareness or the control over a specific muscle, that's what's going to leave you susceptible to injuries. Uh, that's when your joints no longer know where they are in relation to space. And that's essentially where pain comes from it, is your body's brain body awareness, it's lost. And it says, I don't know where this limb is in relation to space. So now I'm going to cause this pain signal, I'm gonna cause the muscles to tighten up, because I don't know how to control myself when I'm out in this position. So that's extremely important. And with that too, it's, it, it goes much more beyond just being able to contract a bicep. Like it's, it has to be, you're looking at left versus right. You're looking at different heads. So like a medial head of a bicep, lateral head of a bicep. When somebody contracts their bicep, does the bicep head shift to the medial side? Does it shift to the lateral side? Can they contract it more by the elbow? Can they contract it more by the shoulder? Uh, and so all those things are very important because I could squeeze my bicep get a very good, strong contraction, but it all occurs around my elbow and there's no tone up towards my shoulder. That's a huge problem. And so essentially what that means is there's a leak in, in how the force is being dissipated throughout the body. And that same example can be applied to the legs where I see it all the time, where it's, especially if certain people have knee injuries, there's so much tone that kind of locks up around the knee and then they're not able to create tone around the hip. Um, or even vice versa sometimes happens because the VMOs will kind of shut off and then you got to learn to re-engage those uh, VMOs so that they start firing again. For sure. Like I, I've never experienced this until like the last year or two, because I've been pretty injury free throughout my life, but I hurt my right knee about a year or so back. And like the, the way in which I even do a basic split squat between those two different sides, like you talked about, you can, you can, it's noticeably different or just whenever I do a split uh, lunge or anything, it's different. Like I, I feel much more hip dominant trying to get around that knee region. Um, and, and I even feel like different capabilities in my feet, which is something my name of my podcast is from the ground up. So I had to take a look at that, right? Because it, it and you referencing gates, that's huge because if you're walking around all day, eventually something's going to give because you're trying to get around that weak point. So trying to get back to that, to that starting position, that square where we're losing our efficiency, that's something that I definitely want to drill down to going into our next talking point. Um, some of your, your methodologies behind that. Before we uh, do that, I just kind of wanted to talk about layering as well, because I want to look at this from two different perspectives. Firstly, I really appreciated you talking about 
involving the entire athlete. I hate to use the word holistic. Sometimes I feel like it's a buzzword, but it, it really encompasses what we're trying to do here. I also want to think about like sensory integration as well. Um, anything that you do in regards past like basic proprioception in your isometric. So do you utilize different head positions, eye positions? I've seen you reference being more focused and internalized. So can you talk about how you may leverage both ends of that spectrum? more about your environment and more internalized. I definitely use eye movements and head movements. So a lot of opposite head and opposite eye movements. And what that essentially does is that helps stimulate the vestibular system. And so one way that somebody could start out with that is just having their arm out in front of them with their thumb up. And then they would just slowly look left and right as, as the thumb stays fixated. And then they could do rapid head movements where the thumb is out in front and then they rapidly turn their head let's say to the right, as their eyes stay fixated on the thumb. And so those just movements help uh, really help stimulate the, the vestibular system. And then I find that to be very powerful because you're going to notice that certain people have a very hard time looking a certain direction. And so that also plays a huge role into trying to get a muscle to fire because, you know, you could focus on all you like, you could gain the awareness of, ha of having a muscle contract. But if it's up top where you go to look to the left and somehow that inhibits you from the, you know, your spinal cord down, that that's going to be a huge issue. So you want to make sure that I think, it, what is it called again? It's vestibular ocular, vestibular ocular reflex. I believe it's at the base, basically the top of the spinal cord and wherever you look is uh, essentially what's going to then activate the muscles along that spine. So I, I know like you can put your, your fingers at the base of your skull and then you can look left and you can look right and you might be able to feel a slight contraction occur at the base of your skull and comes with the vestibular training. Uh, the other thing we use too is, I mean, we had a thing called the stochastic resonance therapy, which was the SRT, which basically provides random movements uh, at, and they occur every millisecond and they occur between five to eight hertz uh, so that it's specifically targeting the spinal reflexes versus uh, the muscular system. So, I mean, we also had a contraption like that. We were very blessed to, to have. So that, that was one thing that we also used to engage the vestibular system was that. And then with the other question, I think you have vestibular system and what was the other one? Just like any visual. So anything else you have as far as sensory integration. And after you go through that, I want to kind of talk about more like interoception and promoting feel between muscle groups. And then also you can share your own personal experience of focusing on a goal because you talked about meeting athletes, not only like biologically and through their different field, but thinking on goal setting. So I know you had a really unique experience. That's kind of the other end of the spectrum being laser focused versus bringing yeah. kind of chaos and layers. So, okay. I, I will say one more on the eye tracking. The other thing you can do too, is you can set up the, what we would do is we would set up mazes. And so they would have like a laser pointer and as they're doing isometric, they would have to solve um, a maze. So they're, they're forced to look left, forced to look, you know, down, left, right. You know, they're getting all different planes. And then I would also, I created my own giant whiteboard of eye tracking movements that I wanted them to do so that they could cover all every single plane. So those are other options that you can do is you can create tracks that run horizontal and vertical and, and diagonal on a whiteboard, or you can also blow up the size of a maze. And you can have people track through that. And so I, I find that to be very beneficial, especially getting people out of pain. That's probably where those things come into the biggest play is that, or at least where you see the biggest difference. You know, if you have an athlete who isn't in pain at all and is feeling functional, like you probably wouldn't see as big of jumps. But I mean, man, I had had athletes with 
so-called bicep tendonitis, hamstring strains, and simple things with the lasers, um, learning to segment joint positions. And these things would be gone within two, two one-hour sessions just by regaining the awareness um, and, and incorporating the, the brain activity uh, with the muscle contractions. Uh, yeah, so that stuff's very powerful. What's yeah, before that? you go into that that second caveat, I mean, just to bring all that home, <clears throat> many people often take kind of for granted that the eyes, they provide so much sensory information to us. I mean, a statistic I've seen, and it's hard to, you know, validate everything, but like 80% of our sensory information is going to come directly from how we see things visually. And it mimics movement too, for people that are unfamiliar in this realm. I mean, you're mimicking movements, which we reference as far as gait. So like, that's really a lot of the justification on bringing this in. And I'll also throw in another thing that I know will probably come up later in the conversation. It's bringing kind of a novel experience experience and it's keeping the arousal um, to an area that kind of keeps the plasticity going in the situation because something like a, a long duration isometric or holding position, it can become kind of redundant and boring by providing those different novel stimuluses, you're also kind of keeping people's interest peaked as well. So those are some things that were standing out uh, before we go into that other more, I guess, laser-like focused, goal-oriented uh, thought process. No, I like that a lot. I mean, that also plays a role. And I mean, there's a lot of times when I'm assessing cerebellum weakness, and if there's one side that's weaker than the other, essentially, then their entire workout, like if they had a left cerebellum weakness, their entire workout is going to be only using the left side of their body. And so it, which it makes it very different for people, especially if they do five to 10 training sessions with only one side of their body. But it's, it's very important because most I mean, they always bounce back feeling stronger. They feel more balanced. They feel a lot more coordinated just because the brain is, is, is working more coherently. Now there's not one part that's being more dominant and one, you know, one's being overactive and the other one's more inhibited. So yeah, that's right on. And, and then, you know, going into the next thing, creating the reality. And, and this is, you know, this could be very difficult for people um, to kind of create the reality that they want. And this is where I always go to the main focus of these isometrics that I find is probably the number one benefit is that it exposes you. It, it puts you in a position where you are going to fail every single time. And when you are failing every single time, you're going to learn a lot about yourself. You're going to learn about how angry you are. You're going to learn about how quick to react you are. You're going to learn about how your breathing gets out of control. You're going to learn how you're going to start blaming things. You're going to start holding on to things. And so you start learning a lot about who you are as an individual, whether you are looking for that or you're not. So whether it's conscious or, or subconscious. And so that's what I, I've really learned to appreciate about the isometrics. And so that when you're under that high stress environment, it's no better opportunity than to basically reset and create a different reality for yourself, like set a new intention rather than, you know, creating this is, I'm, you know, this is hard. I can't hold this for this amount of time. If you set yourself up where you, you have your end goal in mind, and it's not just this is where I want to be because want means uh, maybe someday, but not today, which means basically correlates to it will never happen. And so the mindset then has to be, I am, you know, whatever you want to fill in the blank. Like I am a basketball player. I am a baseball player. I am the greatest dunker of all, like just whatever it is, but you have to create this reality for yourself and you have to believe it and you have to make it true. And so during the isometrics, I mean, my own experience was, and I, and I didn't even do the positions right. And I didn't even, I know I didn't even contract the right muscles, but just the thought alone of going through and taking a set period of time to just meditate as I hold isometrics until the point that I could, I could basically dunk a ball. 
And all I did was I just visualized and I created this reality for myself where I lived in a reality where I could jump, <laughs> even though the current reality that I lived in, I couldn't jump. And so I, I created this reality, which for me was true. And in my mind, I played it over and over again. And I engaged all my senses of what I would hear, what I would smell, what I would feel, how would I would do it? Would have, you know, was I wearing shoes? Was I barefoot? What uh, arm would I use to dunk? What arm, you know, what leg would I jump off of? What, what is the feeling of the ball going through the net? What is the feeling of me having my head up towards the rim? And then as the ball goes through the rim and I start to land, you know, what, what are my emotions there? So I, I made sure that every single phase uh, of that uh, particular activity was mapped out. And so that was the reality I created. But I, again, the, the biggest thing though, I, I think the takeaway is the first step is, is first learning who you are as an individual, because once you're exposed, that's kind of when your true character starts coming out. And so at that moment, you have a decision whether to stay in your old self or create a different personality for yourself, become a new person and essentially level up or upgrade however you want to call it. Speaking of a lot of the different things, like I've, I've been doing a lot of background research and some of this stuff will be coming out eventually. And it's nothing new that I'm creating, but I'm just condensing tons of amounts of research from different peoples and different perspectives. And I've been looking a lot at like personality and neurotransmitters and just different personality traits and the type of training that best aligns. And again, Christian Thibodeau is really credited with that. I'm, I've also been looking at Poliquin and some of those different things. And it's just amazing how like everyone's going to respond differently to different methodologies of training. We all realize that, but we normally don't like... Mm -hmm grant that towards it being like the basis of who you are chemically, you know, so it's really kind of garnered my interest and in like how we can better leverage training like that. So like whenever someone's exposed and they feel like a high dopamine person, like they may respond really fiery and want to try it again and again and again, you may have to stop those people and calm them down. Whereas other people are like, they like the experience. They liked, they're just doing it for the experience, um, more serotonin based and things like that. So I've been studying a lot of that. So that stuck out to me. And then I also like, I've had Stephen Jones on. We've talked about just kind of like the laws of skill development and learning and that awareness and feel everybody always to me tries to skip past that so quickly that they don't ever craft that reality, which we're kind of referencing here. So they don't ever really move on into mastery, like the skill you're talking about, crafting that new reality, the ability to dunk the basketball. I feel like we really step over that really quickly because it's not sexy. It's just viewed as a means to an end. I find it to be extremely powerful. Yeah, no, I would agree with that. But I think it just goes back to your intentions and what you want. <laughs> you know, it's and that's the thing is isometrics or a lot of you know, sometimes just my training style in general is, is it's not for everyone. Um, it can be too tense. It can be too hard. And other people take that as a challenge. And I mean, that, that's just kind of, that's, that's with everything. That's kind of life. You know, some things resonate with people and other things don't, but yeah, I, I would agree that one of the things that I kind of always learned, and, and this just kind of helps me keep it as simple as possible is that when people get into a stress state, they're going to fall back to one type of modality. And when I mean modality, it usually means visual kinesthetic or auditory. And so when they get into a stress situation and they're being you know, exposed and they're getting upset and angry, uh, a kinesthetic person is going to result back to touching, feeling, they're going to talk about how they feel this or they feel that an auditory person is going to talk about things that they hear, the, the sounds that bother them. Um, and then a visual person is the things that they see, the things like if they're looking in a mirror at themselves or they're looking at others. And so 
what, what I find is that I, I try and first have an athlete or something. I try and figure out, are they a, a person who, you know, that if they, if you told them to sit on their hands and sit in a chair that within 10 seconds, they'd be squirming around. They're probably a kinesthetic person. If there's somebody who's more of an auditory person where every single time they talk to you, they have their head like tilted to the side, uh, rather than saying words of like, I feel this or feel that. Um, they, they're expressing, I hear you, or they might talk a lot. They might like repetitive beats. So, you know, like um, so the BPM music, beats per minute music or whatever. Uh, and then, which they would also respond really well to metronomes. And then uh, also to the visual persons, you know, someone more of like, you know, the shoes are always clean. The outfit is clean. You know, the they're always dressed in some sort of style. Like they're, they're very conscious of how uh, they look. And so it's, it's, something that I've kind of learned, but it's also been very profound for me to just figure out, okay, if this person's more of a kinesthetic person, then probably when I'm going about training, like I need to make sure that they're feeling something. So like something like a max contraction all out, they're going to love that because they love the feeling of it being all out max contract. Uh, somebody like visual wise, they might want to do it in a mirror where they're, they're seeing the tone being created in a hearing person. They'll probably go either direction, but those are just other things that I try and keep in mind. And, and I try not to overcomplicate it too much, but when somebody's in a stress state and you're trying to communicate to them, a lot of times people don't want to be communicated to. And so the best way to communicate them to is asking the right questions. And that's essentially meaning speaking their language. And if their language is kinesthetic, then you speak kinesthetic. If their language is auditory, you speak auditory, uh, et cetera. So uh, those are other, I guess, important things that I've kind of learned along the way as well. I'm glad you really threw that line of rationale in there because it would seem like you almost pigeonhole, but you're not because I was going to throw in the quote like 10,000 times versus 10,000 iterations because once you figure out who that person is, you can then more effectively peel those layers, which we're going to kind of talk about here, because you're speaking their language. It's like if you were working with someone who speaks only French and you were speaking English the entire time, they may understand some some of it, but it's not their native tongue, right? So like you're speaking to their body on a, on a level that they much um, more understand. So I believe in repetition, but again, providing that novel stimulus through a language they speak may open them up to other uh, realms of the spectrum as well. So really enjoyed that. Going into this next section, you've already referenced it and you've already provided some good rationale, but I want to talk a little bit more about compensatory patterns and how that can tie into fatigue as well um, and be accelerated with fatigue. So firstly, first part of this, let's think about compensatory patterns like you were discussing, and let's just kind of go through a basic lineup of how you would go about once you discover a certain you can kind of go a theoretical situation here of how you would deal with lessening those compensatory patterns then we can kind of attach it to other points the way that i do this now is essentially i have the athlete or the individual figure out the compensations on their own and so essentially what it is is essentially they go through an assessment of figuring out what muscles they can contract what muscles they can't contract and essentially we work from the ground up we work from the feet, look, I know, right? Comparing the medial arches versus the lateral arches. You're looking at the medial gastroc head versus the lateral gastroc head. And you're working all the way up the body and even going to the hands of how well can you engage the lateral arch of the hand versus the medial arch of the hand. And so what this does is this immediately gives the user the feedback that they need. So then they automatically know what muscles they need to contract. I, I find it if I'm just sitting there telling them your quad's not contracting, this isn't contracting hard enough, this isn't contracting hard enough. Rather, if I can educate them to the point where they know how to fix themselves, they know how to resolve the issues, they know where they need to focus, 
then they've become self-sustainable and they no longer need me, which is exactly what I want. <laughs> I don't want people to be dependent on me. I want them to be self-sufficient. And so that's the other component of, of my training too, which is, is a big component of why it's not for everyone is because I'm forcing you to be self-sufficient. And that can be very difficult for individuals because we are always taught that we must be dependent on the coach. You know, I, I don't, I mean, it's a grandpa saying, but it's like, if I had a quarter for every time that somebody said to me, you know, I asked the question, well, what do you want to do today? And they go, I don't know, you're the coach. So what should I do? Uh, you know, I'd, I'd probably be, I probably wouldn't be a millionaire, but I, I have at least a few thousand dollars. But anyway, where I'm getting at is it's, I, I don't want, I'm not here to tell you what you want or what you need, or like, these are the things that you should be able to start learning through self-reflection. Like, you tell me what you need. What is your weakest point? What going, okay, you have a match this weekend. Okay, what do you need? You know, what, what's not, do you need acceleration? Do you need top speed? Do you need some strength? Do you need some mobility? Uh, and you should be able to reflect back to that to me and, and be able to say, this is exactly what I need. And then we'll devise a plan and then we'll go get it done. That's uh, kind of how I, I've orchestrated the compensations. But, you know, even with that, I, I mentioned the tone. Um, other things that I, I usually have people do, and, and this is an easy way for people to identify compensation is, is standing attention against a wall. Uh, as soon as you stand against a wall at attention, you're going to very quickly realize if you're, if you can't get your head up against the wall, if your rib cage is flaring, if your entire back is off the wall, uh, where are the pressures of your feet when you're standing on the wall? And so these are just assessment tools of that you can essentially learn by, okay, does this muscle contract? Does it not? Uh, and then standing against the wall and figuring out what is, what is my posture like? And through a lot, you know, through all of that, now you can essentially pick a hundred different isometrics just by standing in attention, learning all the conversations within standing in attention. And now you can apply those into your isometrics. So for example, you know, if my rib cage is flaring hard and the entire back, my back is off the wall and I can't get, you know, from the nipple line, basically like if the nipple line above is off the wall, that's probably a problem. It means your rib cage is flaring. So that means that when I get into a lunge, you're probably going to see that same person where they're really arching their back, the rib cage is flaring. So then you know that one of the things that they need to do is that they need to pin that rib cage down. They need to learn control over that rib cage and, and keep that rib cage in a neutral position. It uh, doesn't mean that I'm not saying that the rib cage is going to expand and move up and down. All I'm getting at is that in the isometrics, that position matters because that is a, a position they can't control. If they're stuck with a rib cage in a flared state, that's great for when they're sprinting, but it's not great if their abdominals can't work to pull the rib cage back down because essentially that rib cage needs to pump up, pump down, pump up, pump down. And if it's just stuck in this pumped out position where it's flared and the abdominals can't contract hard enough to pull it back down into position, then you're, I mean, you're globally, you're losing a lot of tension because um, your core, your abdominals or your core is connecting the upper body fascia lines to the lower body fascia lines. And so you're going to lose a lot of uh, how you dissipate force, how you create tension, um, et cetera. So, you know, that's, that's one way of the compensations. Thinking anything else with that, that I usually see is also too, yeah, just how, how people breathe. I mean, that's, a, that's a big component as well. You know, when they start contracting a muscle that they don't really have control over, uh, let's say they can't engage their their high lateral hamstring and you tell them to engage their lateral high hamstring, then all of a sudden their breathing gets out of control. They start sweating like crazy. That's another big component as well. And so I, I don't know, I hope that answers your question, but I, if you have any other play on questions with that, I'd, I'd love to answer, but those are kind of the basic is, is I don't want 
me to be telling them how they're compensating. I want them to start figuring out what they see is not working. Well, I think it plays in really well to another point that's going to come up. And I'm going to mention a couple of things because you, you threw a lot of great things out there. Um, the buy-in perspective you've already referenced, and it's, it's the thing that how we view things is kind of like how we're going to set ourselves up to rationalize. And that's our perspective. And we each have a unique perspective. And, you know, we can go all the way back to things like like on Huberman's podcast, the one where he had about talking about the milkshakes. And people were drinking a milkshake that's healthy for you. And they were drinking one that's kind of like your more conventional milkshake. And just by their perspective of thinking about the milkshake being healthy whenever it actually was just a regular milkshake, the body received that milkshake and had the response that it would to a more healthy alternative. So it's crazy how the power of the brain that we've kind of been speaking to I also loved in the buy-in and self-assessment. Like it's really refreshing to hear somebody talk about building sustainability in their athletes, because that's not like really a capitalist model, I guess you'd say, because typically we want to keep people coming back, coming back, coming back, right. In the private sector, that's what most people's perspective would be. So it's nice because I feel like it it points more towards like authenticity and like trying to be true to who each athlete is and the last thing I wanted to say before I let you kind of talk about anything that stood out to you there is creativity and awareness because I didn't get to throw this in there because a lot of the times I feel like people whenever they feel like you're more aware they feel like it may stifle creativity but I've actually seen you discuss that whenever you're more aware you're actually more apt to be creative um, and I've been studying that a good bit too because creativity is nothing more than a lot of things and the condensation of those things so you got to have awareness of all these different I guess you'd say factors and then you have to get kind of laser-like and focused and see the connection so all those things were kind of standing out as you were rationalizing. Probably the biggest thing that I, I guess this, the saying uh, Buckminster Fuller, you know, when you're going to um, essentially create something or you're going to change something, it, it's not you focus on in one domain. It's that if you if you want to create something, you need to. It has to be multiple, like multiple domains. It, it's it's multifactorial. It's you know, if you want to create create a product or something, like you need a plumber, you need a chemist, you need a biologist, you need a sports trainer, uh, a medical like you need everybody from all these different domains in order to actually build something because nothing works in separation. Um, I wish I could remember the exact quote, how it goes, but essentially nothing works in isolation. And we know that that's how our human body works. You know, we, you know, you don't just train only the upper body. You don't train just the lower body. You know, it, you don't just train the cardiovascular system or the, the muscular system. Um, because every single day, it's not just like the body just says, Hey, today, um, I'm only my arms are going to function like <laughs> it doesn't do that. And so the body works as a whole. So that's how we train it. And uh, that's also how I've seen the, the benefits too, by going kind of back to the roots or going from the ground up of, of training somebody from a, um, an uh, embryological stage of movements where, you know, you learn to be on your back, you learn to roll over, you learn to be on your stomach, you learn to sit up, you learn to, then you learn to uh, stand. And then from there, you learn how to kind of take your first step. And then from there, you, you do uh, a lot more different movements. And so I, I guess where I'm essentially getting with this is that it's, it's so important to be able to look at research or resources outside of the strength and conditioning community. Like if all you're ever doing is just looking at what other people are doing within the strength and conditioning group, whatever, uh, you're, you're going to always be capped. You're always going to be waiting for them to uh, post the next thing uh, rather than being proactive of like 
okay, well, how can I go out and um, learn to create or how can I mess with or tinker with things? Because there's so many things on social media and I, I'm sure I've fallen victim to it. And But it's just like you, you, you look for the, these certain groups or these certain people to post things. And once you've done that, you've essentially stunted your creativity. You're no longer creating. You're, you're relying on somebody else, something else that you see to then go do and, and, you know, whatever you want to do with that is whatever you do with it. But essentially what I'm getting at is, is you want to be able to expose yourself to so many different domains and then figure out how all those different domains uh, apply to what you do, you know, apply to your craft, your skills, like, you know, how, how does farming relate to training? How does, and I'm not just talking about farmers carry, but I'm just talking about like, <laughs> or hail bailing, you know, um, you know, for ideas of throwing a med ball, but no, I, it's much more beyond that. It's like, what's the relationship with the soil? Like how, how the soil health is a direct relationship to how you know, much mineral dense the food is. And the more mineral dense the food is, then the more nutrients that you get, or the more nutrients the animals get, which eats those mineral dense foods, which then you eat those animals that ate the mineral dense food. And so those same processes are occurring with inside of our body. Like if we want to learn about how muscles regenerate, we want to learn how about um, you know, how to take care of our bodies or, or fatigue or anything like that. Uh, we have to look outside of just the strength and conditioning models. We have to look outside of the textbook and, and realize that nothing is really trying to harm us to say, like our body isn't fatiguing to try and break us down or to harm us. Our body is, is working in such a way that is, is being the most optimal state. And so if we train in a, in a matter that encourages that, which is reinforcing, creating this optimal training state, then fatigue starts going away, overall health uh, increases. And then as a side bonus, you jump higher or you run faster. I, I guess that's the biggest thing where I'm getting at that. And, and where that ties that back to is just the tone awareness. You know, uh, if you can't create that reciprocal inhibition, if you can't have your quads and your, your hamstrings contract appropriately together in unison how they're supposed to, then once one side of it might be the lateral low quad starts taking all this brute force and then over repetitively the next thing you know you have a quad strain and it's just your body telling you that hey these systems are not working appropriately this is taking the brute force and it's doing a really go good job however though if you continue down this pattern it's going to lead to more injuries so it's just giving this feedback of hey, we need to change. Um, it's the same thing as the soil starts to get kind of poisoned to say, or we spray things on the soil, it starts getting dried up, it starts getting hard. And the next thing you know, you get the grass that creates the thistles on it. And so then you can't walk on the grass because there's a bunch of pokers anywhere. And then our solution to that is to spray it more because we think that that's how we fix it rather than saying, well, why don't we provide some nutrients to it area or figure out how we can balance the ecosystem out or restore it back to its original function. And then it, it goes back to more of its native uh, grasses. And so it's just, it's, I mean, I guess, I hope that's a good example and people understand that, but that's, that's what we need to look at when it comes to the human body is how can we regenerate ourselves? How can we use our body? Like, cause it's, we are full of energy. We're full of life. And so how can we use that re, uh, basically renewable energy? Like our body is full of renewable energy. So how can we use that energy and direct it to where it needs to go so that we are training as efficiently as possible versus, um, you know, doing something that is training to be becoming efficient at being inefficient. Uh, Cause that's just going to lead you to drain fatiguing, burnout, CNS fatigue, so-called overtraining uh, and, and all those things that people kind of experience. 
Um, so those are the things like I, I don't see, like I don't see overtraining. I don't see burnout. I don't see the CNS fatigue when you learn to balance out the body. Uh, and you see the opposite. You see people full of energy. They can go, they could sprint, you know, hundred sprints. They could, and it doesn't have to be just 10 yards, 15 yards. Like it could be 50 yards where they can just, they just go and go and go because their body learns how to work with itself rather than, um, you know, being this nuclear bomb that goes off, you know, when you sprint. You know, that, was, that was a lot, but <laughs> no, great points. And, you know, mine's a, my, what I was sticking out in my mind was like you talking about like developing a diversity of experiences. And we talked just for briefly before we jumped on and I was kind of sharing how I've worked in a team setting a lot, but stepping away from the team setting, which by nature has to be more regimented, especially whenever you only have a one or two people that aren't a sports coach that really focus on athletic development and the different processes behind it, stepping away. And like one of my greatest excitements was to work with young kids, um, kids that are like eight, nine, 10 years old, because I was like, how can I get something productive out of a training session, but at the same time, harness the creativity of a child. And, you know, like through my experience in the couple of months that I've done it, um, I know a lot of people speak about games and I like to try and blend skill development into a game later on because you, you talk and you reference this as well. And we'll get into arousal and stuff here in just a moment, but like their eyes light up. They're willing to go hard. I can tell a kid to sprint. They don't really understand the feeling until you're chasing that rabbit if you're the dog in the game or something like that, right? So, like, meeting your athletes where they are, and I was really excited to bring that creative element because I've been so far from it that I've been able to bring it back to a team setting more efficiently. So I enjoyed that because you can get really siloed and think about this is how it has to be done, this is how it has to stay. And I feel like everything you shared there really provides a good kind of base layer for what we're going to discuss for this last talking point, which is a hefty one. So I'm going to throw two, uh, two different things out there, high velocity and high volume. Those are two different things that tend to stand in stark contrast from one another. In fact, I've had several writings on, I've, I've had multiple people on there kind of like more avoiding fatigue. Um, but I can appreciate the line of logic that I've heard you present. So I'm excited to, to talk about this. Let's talk a little bit about you, you referenced a lot of it there, but let's talk about that impetus moment, those things that led you to maybe there's another way to do this. So let's start there and then we'll kind of dice all that up and pick out different considerations. High velocity, high volume. So yeah, you mentioned those things kind of pin each other. Anytime that there's something that's supposed to be very straining to the CNS, you're supposed to do it low volume. And, you know, and then something that is, is not as stressful to the CNS, then you're supposed to do more high volume. And, and that's, that's what we've been taught. And that's what I fully believed as well. Um, and then just through my own experiences, I, I found the opposite to be true. And, you know, I, I was with our athletes, like stuck on this mindset first that they're going to come in and we're going to do this kind of like triphasic West side barbell type mix where they're going to be, you know, every single time they're going to be doing different things. They're going to be lifting from different joint positions and it's going to be this max weight. And then um, I quickly realized that day one, 30 athletes roll in and they're like, yeah, we already uh, max squatted and we did 30 minutes of, of running stairs. And, you know, and then after that, then we max deadlifted and then tomorrow we max bench. So I was like, okay, my plan isn't going to work anymore. <laughs> so, uh, it, and it just so happened that it ended up being a blessing, even though in the moment it, it seemed challenging, but majority of my athletes were all hurting 
like my the hamstring strains, back hurts, my elbow hurts, my shoulder, like just whatever it was, something hurts. <laughs> and so I was like, okay, um, so let's just do isometrics. Then you guys work on, you know, since your training at your school is all these max lift pretty much every single day, this, this blend between CrossFit and Bulgarian style lifting, you know, I was like, good luck with that, but we'll do my best to manage it. So we're going to do isometrics and try and handle the compensations and just balance out your body. And then, you know, a couple of weeks went by, a month went by and injuries were down. And then I went to go retest for flying tens and I'm, you know, sitting here thinking, okay, with a, you know, auto regulation with DB hammer style, I'm expecting, you know, people to, to drop off anywhere between six to, you know, maybe 12 sprints and we're doing flying tens. They're building up from like 30 yards out, hitting the 10 yards. And then, you know, still the max sprinting kind of after the 10 yards. And so they would run and then I would get their time and be like, okay. And then they run again, the time would increase. And I was like, okay. And then maybe the time dropped just a hair, but it wasn't enough for it to be a complete drop off. And then it'd be like, okay, you know, if you run one more time and you, you run slower than this time, you're done. And it was like, they wouldn't, <laughs> it just wouldn't. And so it, it was like every session after session, after session, after session for the, the six hours of the training day, I didn't have anybody drop off. They all ran for over. This causes for, for re-examining what just happened because this, this wasn't supposed to happen. And uh, that quickly realized, or I mean, just draw me to the conclusion that if you train the body appropriately and you, you give it the correct stimulus of balancing out the body, uh, then it starts to regenerating that every single time you sprint, if a true reciprocal inhibition occurs, when that muscle goes to relax, and, and we know that at high velocities is how a muscle relaxes the fastest, which means that they're going to recover faster. And so every single time they go to take a sprint, if the reciprocal inhibition is working better and they're relaxing faster, then that means they're going to recover faster. And so I was just like, there's, there's something to the high velocity, high volume, and, and we continue to run with it. And we had incredible results, results that just, I, to me, were at first just unheard of, thought were impossible, you know, taking high school baseball athletes and having high school baseball athletes who are eating steak and shake and McDonald's run faster 10 yard accelerations than certain NFL combines have been recorded. I mean, that, that just blew my mind and really showed me that the way that we're training people, there's so much more to learn and I have so much more to learn. Uh, but with that as well, the, the problem that people usually get, you know, repulsed by, or they get intimidated by is that they think the high volume like in the modern strength conditioning world, the high velocity, high volume. Yeah, that's true. It doesn't work with their models and their models. They're not looking at how the body compensates. They're not looking at how like certain hip positions or joint positions either engage a muscle or don't engage a muscle. So if you can pair in what they're doing with the heavy lifting and, and the sprinting and all that stuff with getting your muscles to fire appropriately, then it no longer becomes an issue because you're not further degrading the body, you're actually building the body up You're you're teaching the body how to distribute force, how it's supposed to. And so, and it also takes that amount of reps. It just does. There's many studies out there that show it takes hundreds of thousands to millions of reps to change how somebody's body fires. And the only way that they can learn how to, their muscles to fire differently is if through a game like activity, where they take that number from like a hundred thousand down to like less than a thousand, maybe potentially less than a hundred. They can, you know, it's, they're not going to be able to specifically say this, 
just because each individual is different. But that's why it's so important where I find the vestibular system as well, because if you can take the conscious mind or even sound stuff, you, you can put them, you know, playing different freq sound frequencies as well and put them in a more of a, a delta brainwave state or a theta brain state where they start taking their conscious mind out of it and you start engaging with the subconscious mind to retrain how or rewire essentially how the nervous system is firing and that can kind of help speed things up but again everything i do with the high velocity high volume is to target the areas that are the limiting factors and they need those reps they need the tone they need the contractions in order to balance out the body once the body balances out then you see that all the organ systems balance out, which means then they just become a healthier individual. And then, like I said, the side effects of becoming a healthier individual, uh, being able to digest things faster, you know, your organs process faster, your whatever the whole, you know, you know, Krebs cycle or whatever your, your organ systems need to do in order to make energy, all that stuff functions faster. And so then the byproduct is you can run faster, you can jump higher and you can throw harder. Yeah, that, that, that's pretty much it. I mean, that's kind of my experience with it is it's not detrimental as long as you know how to identify the compensations. Well, here's one big separator in what you're presenting there as well. Like you are actively working towards trying to optimize individuals' bodies. We, we can say that we're trying to do that in our training methodologies, but you're trying to look like you said for the limiting factor. And the limiting factor is, is precise. It's like the true limiter um, on their movement. And you and at the same time, you've also spoke that the body is an integrated system and there are multiple systems that may work towards those compensations that we're looking at. So you're being extremely precise, but you're also taking the integration of the body and just the holistic nature of the body and how the entire body works. Most of the time, we're not being that precise whenever we're chasing what we talked about, these two different ends of the spectrum, high intensity and high volume. It's just, I want to get strong as you know what, or I want to get really fast, or I just want to work the dog you know what out of you. So it's just like, that's what would be more associated with those terminologies that we're throwing out there. But you're talking about something that's become increasingly important in my own training is going back to the basis, going back to the PCS system, going back to sensory integration, going back to breathing going back to the firing patterns. And you're also speaking to the fact that we need to be, we need to have that experience again and again and again. So we need to have repeated experiences with that. So it all makes a lot of sense, especially whenever you view it through that lens. No, and, that, and that's the other thing too, is where it's, I continue to, uh, I mean, the team that I, I had or worked with, you know, we continue to think of new ways of how can we get, you know, because like my background, even before going into the facility was, you know, I did my independent under on my undergraduate degree was in independent sports research. And I, you know, really thought that I was going to be going to my master's and get my master's in biomechanics and then eventually maybe get my PhD and just basically do sports research for the rest of my life. But <laughs> I decided not to. But um, but with that, where I'm getting at that is that the things that I looked at was that within the baseball community, there's so many rehab exercises or there's just exercises in general that they claim that are really good for elbow health or shoulder health. And it's like, where are you making this claim at? Where's your research to back this up? That was the mindset that I was thinking of. And, and basically what I want to do is test that. And, and so we used EMGs and to basically look at the muscle activity of what these individuals were programming, you know, whether it's J bands or, you know, a Paloff press or, um, you know, again, I'm not going to get into it, but 
all these different exercises they were doing. And basically what I found is that when you compare those exercises, their, their muscle activation compared to a baseball throw, the activation was way less and it was way too slow. And, you know, looking at the research, a UCL tears somewhere between 35 to 50 milliseconds. And the, the speed that people were training essentially was that uh, a, a J band would cause a muscle to contract in a one second, you know, something like a, they would do like a reverse throw or a pal off press or something. But again, all these exercises that they were suggesting were all making the muscles fire way too slow, or they weren't uh, uh, enough stimulus to be the same stimulus or greater than the stimulus that somebody would experience when they throw a baseball. Then my thing was like, okay, well, let's go and test all of the, the, you know, the banded stuff that Dietz does. If somebody puts their arm in between a band and they go rapidly up and down, how much stimulus is that occurring? And, and lo and behold, that stuff where it's high velocity creates the same exact uh, slope that occurs when somebody goes to throw a baseball. So now you can take those two slopes. Now you know that those muscles are firing at the same rate and you know that it's not, uh, th that the activation is higher and firing at the same rate, which is very important. And so, you know, okay, that's, that's probably a good exercise for somebody to do to say transfer of training. Like the transfer of training comes from when those slopes of how fast does the muscle contract carry over? Because that's what happens when people, you know, get into sport is like, well, how do we take the weight room and, you know, the weight room's too slow or whatever. But so that, that was a component of it. And then we just continued to progress that is well, how can we find something that's even faster than, you know, the, the banded stuff, you know, is there other things? And that's kind of where it led us into the, the abrupt stops when, you know, if you're doing something with a K box, like if you do eccentric training properly and you go and you go into, let's say a squat or something, and you come back down you need to absolutely stick that bottom position. If there's any sort of give, all of a sudden, all that, that muscle activity, that peak essentially slope drops dramatically. Um, I've seen things where just my own case studies of, of testing people with altitude drops, where if they do an altitude drop and their, their butt essentially continues to go down, um, I think it was like a 45% decrease in muscle activation versus them actually being able to stick it. And when they do stick it and they don't move, that slope is super high. The same thing that you see when somebody goes to jump or sprint. Uh, that's a, just a huge component. But again, the abrupt stops is, is kind of what you see is where it's like, if, if you can find a movement where uh, a limb is going through a range of motion at high velocity and all of a sudden it hits it, it doesn't move, then you get this very powerful, rapid muscle contraction that occurs, high rate um, and high muscle activation. And so then you know that that exercise is going to stimulate your muscles to start firing at higher speeds than what your sport demands. And then I fall along the mindset that you need to train your body to be able to handle two times the amount of force that you're going to experience in your game activity or whatever your activity is. Um, so, you know, if somebody is going to experience 200,000 pounds of force, then when I go to train them, they better be able to handle 400 to 500,000 pounds of force so that when they go back into their game, everything is cake. You know, their opponents are playing at 90% uh, intensity and they only need to play at 60 to match theirs. Um, and so like they don't have to play at 100% um, because they know they can back down and, and their 60% is their opponent's 90% or 100%. So that, and that's, I don't know, that's just a very important piece that I found that is often missed is that that was just wasn't something that we were thinking about in the baseball community was, is the way that we're training people actually beneficial? Because I would argue it wasn't because the rate of Tommy John injuries were just skyrocketing 
And you can even make the same claims for ACL. And, and, and I would say too, one of the best ways to probably take those studies that I've done further would be to incorporate force plates where you can actually see the muscles, like them being able to generate force a lot quicker. So I guess if somebody wants to, to continue on that, but I know there's a lot of stuff already out there that when I was writing the paper that has already kind of produced that is looking at the using the force plate to be able to test and actually effectively show that, you know, these exercises are causing the muscles to contract harder. Uh, Cause I've, I've found studies that, you know, after an ACL tear have shown that the muscles stay inhibited for up to like 24 months. So essentially you have these muscles that are being inhibited for two years. And so that's just showing you that the exercises that they're doing in physical therapy or rehab are just not getting the muscle to fire the way that it needs to. It's not doing the job. Lo and behold, you know, we don't really have a good success rate when it comes to post ACL surgical rehab. It's most times if you tear your ACL, you're probably going to tear it again, unfortunately. So that, that's kind of the perspective also where I'm going at is we got to tra train the body differently because what we're doing is not working and from my perspective. And so I'm hoping to, to kind of help people or I don't know, maybe not help people, but just spread the word. I don't know. I don't know what I'm trying to do there. No, but. every everything you presented goes really well with a word that I wrote down. I like to write down like single words a lot of the times because I feel like they encompass like a topic and efficiency is one thing that I really feel like you were speaking to there. You were speaking about the fact that if somebody can do something at 60% versus 100% or 90%, then they're going to be able to last longer and it's going to be just, uh, they're going to be more skillful in their display. Like on the podcast that actually came out last week, I was talking with uh, Luis Mesquita from over in Portugal and he was talking about the efficiency is what separates the greats and those higher level athletes. They're just much more efficient in their actual skill. And you, you, we can get all crazy trying to mimic patterns and things, but like you spoke to, we're trying to mimic those muscle firing patterns and just the connection, the brain body connection to the neurological connection. You talking about the ACL tears and things. We have to go back to that threat detection. I've seen you discuss this as well. You have to go back and, and go back to the fact that every time they encounter these certain experiences, experiences, the body is shutting down, compensating, locking things down, which can lead to that higher uh, risk of injury like you uh, spoke to. So you did a great job talking about preaching towards a method of efficiency through not just mimicking the actual thing, but through thoughtful skill development and optimization of patterns. So enjoyed it all. I latched onto every part of that. So great. Great. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. And yeah, you mentioned that that is the most important piece right there. You said the end is the perception and action. Because uh, again, I could go through all this high velocity, high volume training, but then if the athlete goes back out into the situation that caused that same tear or caused that same stress stimulus, and they don't know how to deal with that specific situation that occurred in the game, then they're going to be prone to some sort of injury or failure. Uh, or then, you know, they get to the point and then the coach is like, they're not confident. They're not confident. Every time they get double teamed, they choke. They're not confident anymore. So now, you know, he's done next man up. And so we don't want that to happen. And so that's where it's like training as well. When you create those game-like situations, they have to be set in an environment that allows for that to safely occur where people are double teaming and, and it's not just, you know, two people randomly running at them. Like you need to literally put them in the exact game-like situation and, and make it, make it the actual game. Like it, it you know, it doesn't need to be a, a game of tag or fancy it up with, flags or or cones like it's just no here's a soccer ball every single time that you start dribbling to the left and you get pinned to the sideline and two defenders start coming up on you 
what are you going to do? Are you going to pass? Are you, you know, going to go a different direction? Um, you know, how are you going to look around for help, et cetera? So those are the situations that we need to look at. And, and a lot of times in the perception action, we just, we overcomplicate it. And that's the biggest thing that I've learned um, is that don't overcomplicate it. You know, if somebody can't feel the backhand, just hit them backhands. Like don't, you know, you don't have to get fancy with ladders and cones and, and, and bands and all this other stuff. It's just, where do you feel exposed on the field? Okay. That's the thing that terrifies you. Okay. That's what we're going to do. And that's it. We don't have to overcomplicate it anymore. So last thing I want to talk about, because I feel like it changed really nicely to some other things that we mentioned, and we have kind of touched on this topic as we've gone along, but it's important to me, like to really leverage your athletes to perform. And this could go back to the high velocity, high volume. Yeah. High velocity, high intensity, high volume. You could go back to all that. So arousal states and leveraging those different levels of arousal, because I'll be honest, working with young teenagers, they come in and like a lot of times you're mad. You don't have people, you don't have energy. You don't have, you know, they want the high energy thing or whatever. But the Mm -hmm. thing is you're coming out of school. You've been sitting on your butt for three blocks of 90 minutes. You've had very little like movement. You there's just, it's just not an ideal situation. So arousal is very important to me. So let's kind of talk about the different states of arousal and how we can exploit that to extend training and kind of optimize our training practices. So the biggest thing with arousal or effective states is is just knowing that certain activities are going to cause certain people to be excited about it. And at certain times, then they're going to get bored. And, you know, I've kind of mentioned that it's important to be able to know both. You know, if you get bored, how can you get yourself out of boredom. And if you're in excitement, how can, as a coach, maybe you transition it over to boredom, or maybe you keep the excitement going because you want to roll with the excitement. And so you, you just kind of have to figure out where the athlete is at and, and that perspective. But a lot of that I find just kind of goes with, you know, changing the stimulus. Like, you know, when we're doing sprints and, and maybe like a guy, you know, we're doing 30 to, to 40 sprints and somewhere along in between that sprint, you know, time start dropping a little bit rather than saying, Hey, your training session's done for the day, um, where it'd be a typical drop-off. Cause I mean, we've had people drop off over 12% of a CNS uh, fatigue, which, you know, you're never supposed to go beyond 3%. We've had people drop off all the way down to 12%, have them go play basketball or shoot some hoops. And then they come back and then they, they basically PR and then they run fat, like continually faster than what they were running prior uh, so, you know, you can change the effective states through the isometrics, re-engaging certain muscles. Uh, maybe they need something with a K box. Maybe they need to go play basketball. Maybe they need to go play football. Maybe they need to create a situation where they're recovering a fumble. Maybe they need to do some grappling work. You know, maybe they need to go to some altitude drops. I mean, whatever it is, but it's the, the thing that I try and see it is that the athletes are exposed to just so many different things that I can say, okay, what do you need to refocus in? And they could be like, I need to go play horse or I need to go play basketball or I need to go do some layups um, or I need to get on the K box machine and I need to just like rep out 50 squats. And I feel like then I'm going to be reset. And so, you know, you try and give them as many different options that they can. So then when you say, okay, how can you get back to where you need to be at? They say, okay, this is exactly what I know I need now. I mean, you, I know you mentioned younger kids, so it's a little bit harder you know, if they don't have, they haven't been exposed to all the different options or what they can do. And then essentially, I guess, then you kind of stuck with how can I 
have a game or how can I create a situation that is engaging to them? And if it's not engaging, you know, how can I adjust this on the fly to make it so that it becomes more engaging? And that, does that mean that it needs to be some rolling? Does it mean that there has to be some diving? Do you change up the ball? Um, you know, versus you know, if you, you know, versus maybe you bring in like a rugby ball or maybe you bring in a, you know, a baseball or something like does just changing one small thing dramatically change the entire emotional state of, of the younger athlete? They can be really locked in for two minutes and then two minutes go by and they're like two minutes, well, let's go do something else. So it can be kind of exhausting as a coach of like, well, we can't play like tennis, basketball, hockey, floor, hockey, baseball, softball. <laughs> you know, it's like, uh, how do we, how do we, you know, generate the interest or how do we get them training? So we're not constantly changing something every 50 times you know can we just change one tiny aspect of the game um and like i said whether it's just small grappling work or you know ch you know racing against somebody as they go in for uh, a dive of a of a frisbee catch or something like that but that's just kind of where you have to kind of explore but that that's kind of where i see it with the arousals though is just learning to see what kind of and that's the other thing too is back to the athlete being able to assess themselves is what gets you excited what doesn't you know do altitude drops get you excited okay then, then you know that maybe when you're doing your isometrics every single time that you finish a set of isometric maybe you go into 10 altitude drops to re-get that arousal or re-get that dopamine hit that you need and so then maybe you blend something like that or you just say isometrics are boring to you okay so then you're going to do all these isometrics and you're going to figure out how to get basically how to get yourself unstuck if that makes sense. Yeah, great points there. And again, you're preaching towards like adaptability and, and self-reliance because every athlete is different. And not only is every athlete different, every day is different for every single athlete. So like you just have to figure out like what's working today. And it doesn't just apply to velocity-based training and loads. It goes beyond X's and O's. It goes into these other areas, which we've kind of been speaking in, bringing in that entire approach about who they are at a deeper level um, and how they kind of craft buy-in. You've provided a lot of different ways to do that today, down all the way to compensation patterns and their self-assessment into their own choices on how to optimize themselves and kind of get their arousal states um, regulated. So I've really enjoyed that. And I feel like, again, I like to attach just terms and I feel like adaptability is something that's important. Any sport that we're preparing people for, Rob Wilson shared that resilience isn't only like toughness, it's adaptability. Because most often in tough situations, you have to be adaptable. Sometimes you have to be soft. Sometimes you have to be extremely tense and hard. That's the nature of sport. That's the nature of life. Um, so all that really flows together very nicely. The last thing I want to give you an opportunity to do before we jump off is tell people where they can find you. Everything you reference here, I'll link. Um, and just tell people anything you have available. Yeah, uh, they can find me. I'm pretty much only on Instagram. And then I have a Discord channel that's kind of like, a, I guess, a Patreon. But it's it's I use Discord instead. Um, so they can find me there. And uh, with that, too, I've I've tried to put out um, well, I have put out different courses. Uh, and essentially what the courses are is they're like a, a coaching mentorship. Like I used to do three month long mentorship programs for coaches or athletes. And I've essentially tried to condense that down into just the visual aspect where it's everything that we would essentially talk about is here um, on this course. And then I've also done stuff where. You know, I've the roots programs where it goes through 70 plus exercises and it looks at how everybody, how to correct it, what to look for. And so I, I usually tell people if they're more of a visual person, then the courses of sitting down, watching a computer screen are probably better for you because then you can watch and then go learn to apply yourself. 
But if you're more of a kinesthetic and I need to learn by moving and doing, uh, then I usually say like, okay, well then you should either go to the the monthly training or you should do more of the, the back to roots because that stuff is going to, essentially you, you have to learn by doing, <laughs> that's all it is. Uh, and so I, I try and cater to those different kind of audiences, but that's what I have out there. And then, like I said, you can find me on, on Instagram is, is probably the best place. All right. Awesome. Well, everything that you referenced there will be linked in the show notes on wherever you choose to view this uh, podcast, as well as on my website, whenever I do the the write-up pertaining to the different topics here. So if you're interested in the different things that he presented, I think it'd be worthwhile to check out a very unique perspective. I, I enjoyed the way you rationalized everything today. And thanks so much for taking time out of your day to sit down with me. I really enjoyed the talking points and conversation. Yeah. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode. Check the show notes for links to Jared's socials as well as other offerings. Head over to From the Ground Up AthleticPerformance.com to see the detailed write up featuring key points from this week's episode. While you're there, you can sign up for Ground Level, the monthly podcast recap featuring key points for all featured episodes. In the market for high quality supplements, Thorne's got you covered. Whether you want to maintain or grow muscle, increase cognitive abilities, or cover your bases for general health and longevity, Thorne has everything organized to find the best options to build a better you. Thorne collaborates with numerous world-class organizations such as the Mayo Clinic and UFC. Don't miss out on saving 20% off your order by using the link located within the show notes or on the weekly write-up. Like what you hear? Make sure to hit the subscribe button to keep up with our weekly releases and leave a rating and review if you feel led to do so. Until next time, thanks for tuning in.